Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Biocompatibility. We accidentally took a month off, Don. I'm not sure how that happened. Was it an accident? Was it really an accident? I don't know. Was it really an accident? Is <laughs> it really an accident if you meant to do it? No, I think it was an accident. But we are back. I know everyone, all 10 of you missed us very, very much. We missed being here. This is actually... Not that not that all of our job isn't fun to some extent, but this is really much more fun than most of the rest of my job. I'm speaking for myself there, Don. Well, you'd think we'd do it more often then, you know, you know, record <laughs> podcasts more often if it's fun. But, you know, we take the time yeah. as we can get it. So it's fun and hard work, I guess. <laughs> Although most people wouldn't think this is hard work. It's it's not hard work. What am I saying? No. Anyway, so we have another esteemed NAMSA colleague with us today. We are going to be talking about uh, what I believe is often a controversial topic, and it is not the failed cytotoxicity. It is <laughs> a material equivalency or biocompatible or, yeah, equivalency for biocompatibility, I think is. So, Michelle Kelly, Michelle, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Yeah. And y'all maybe can tell Michelle is not in the Midwest <laughs> United States like Don and I are. Michelle uh, is one of our European colleagues. And are you in the UK? Yeah, you're in the UK, right? Yes, but you couldn't tell her from my accent. I'm I'm just south of London, but I have a very Irish accent. I was <laughs> so like, I come from Ireland originally. <laughs> I thought about that when we were talking. I'm like, she's not Irish. I thought she was in the UK, but she sounds very, not that I'm a, not that I'm an expert, accent expert, expert. I just made a new <laughs> word. <laughs> an accent expert by any means, but I did, I did sense you're, you're a little Irish there. <laughs> Yes, but yeah, working for the British government, I've been here quite a long time now, since sure. 2006. Excellent. So yeah, Michelle's a toxicologist, and she's joined NAMSA here recently, and we're very happy to have her on board, has lots of experience in the regulatory world from kind of the other side of the table. So happy to have you on our side of the table. And uh, so, Don, we're going to talk about uh, equivalence. Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Why not talk about the thing that we really can't explain? Now, I mean, you can explain yeah. it, but. <laughs> yeah. Explaining something doesn't mean that you necessarily understand it, though. I, I, so. Yeah. So why why in the world would we talk about equivalence per part 18 in the MDR? Like, why in the world would anybody care about that? Because I'm yeah. sure yeah. nobody has a problem with this at all besides us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, certainly, to be quite honest, for especially maybe stateside, if you will, I don't know that some recognize how much equivalency is kind of embedded as a concept in the biocompatibility evaluation of medical devices. I mean, and whether we talk about part 18, whether we talk about ISA 1093 part one, it's, it's definitely in, in both places for sure. Maybe the more technical aspects in part 18, but you know, Outside of just biocompatibility and the 10 and 9.3 series, certainly equivalency kind of takes on another scope 
an additional scope, if you will, when we talk about MDR um, for those out there that uh, might have to deal with MDR, um, putting a device on the market in the EU certainly can uh, present a situation where you not only have to think about equivalency maybe as part of your evaluation strategy for biocompatibility per the 10993 series, 10993 part one mainly, but um, then also think about it as one in terms of biological safety, biocompatibility, one aspect of equivalency that's that's sitting in uh, the, the MDR as well. Um, and, and so, you know, if nothing else, it's it's comforting to me to have somebody like Michelle in this <laughs> discussion because she could certainly bring along uh, both sides of our ad support to both sides of that discussion, both biocompatibility as well as MDR specifics. So, um, but yeah, you know, at, at a high level, um, you know, equivalency is really got some is one of the key fundamental principles that sits in ISO 10993 Part One, um, for sure. And um, you know, I was talking a couple of weeks ago about this this concept, and um, you know, until you kind of sit down and really, you know, even just search uh, ISO 10993 Part One for you know the word equivalent or equivalency stuff like that in in part one you know it's not till you do that that you you know you kind of realize how much the standard really focuses on it um you know in clause 4.1 uh you know it talks about uh, evaluation might result in the conclusion that no testing is needed if the material has demonstrable safe history of use in a specified role physical form that's equivalent to that of the medical device under design um and then it refers you into the type of information that can be used to demonstrate equivalence is in Annex B of the standard. Um, testing is not necessary when sufficient information is already available to form to perform a risk assessment of the material and or medical device. And it tells you to see Annex C there for literature search kind of concepts to help find that type of information. So, I mean, just that concept right there, and I'll stop quoting part one. <laughs> but I mean, it's that. Come on, come up with some unique material, Don. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll read the whole standard. We'll have a podcast where I read part one. Oh yeah, it's it could be your new nighttime. There's a whole new market for you there, Don. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, curing insomnia, reading people part one. <laughs> part one. It'd be interesting though because you could you know you put the right emphasis and different uh, sound effects, voice effects <laughs> where you uh, find interest. Anyways. But uh, voice effects, are you going to give biocompatibility? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. 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 <laughs> we ponder that a little bit. But anyways, so that, that section in part one, you know, stresses this idea. So if we can basically prove in concept that we're the same as something else that's already been suitably evaluated, we might not have much else to do. You know, one of our our episodes when we were getting ready for this episode we talked about you know finding that elusive unicorn in that case we were talking about biological safety specialists um, but sometimes in this scenario it might be you know a bit more challenging and i think from what i've seen in some cases people try to do this when they really shouldn't try to do this um, mm. some cases it makes sense other cases i think some might be stretching what 
the reality of the situation actually is and, and in terms of biocompatibility. And, you know, this is similar to but different than regulatory predicates like a 510K situation in, sure. in the U.S. But, I mean, there's some similarities there as well. And then you get into Part 18, and it gets certainly more detailed, especially when we look at Annex C of that standard. So Annex C gives us a, a VISA 10993 Part 18 now, switching gears. I mean, it, it gives us more emphasis on how to actually technically from a chemical level evaluate equivalency. But it also talks about it in the sense of not only chemical equivalents, but physical equivalents, but endpoint equivalents, material equivalents, all of those summing up to hopefully equate to biological equivalents, if we can prove that all to be true. So part 18 being what it is, it, it focuses on examples primarily around proving chemical equivalents. And, and so, again, if you go back to the original version of Part 18, that was kind of how the flowchart, that simple flowchart that used to be in that standard kind of basically started. Can you prove that you're equivalent to something else? If so, then possibly your job might be done. But Part 18 now, you know, expanded upon those examples. And that's certainly nice to have Michelle here today for our conversation and uh, her involvement in the development of Part 18 and Annex C. And I don't know, Michelle, from your side, in terms of developing or, or when that Annex was developed in its current form, in the 2000, uh, the, the current version of Part uh, 18, that is, 2020 version, you know, when putting it together, was, did you feel that, or what was your confidence level, I guess, that people would be able to use the concepts in Annex C and, and really understand and, and use them in an effective manner, if you will, or, or maybe not so effective? So I think, I think when we developed it, it was, it was really almost like a little group that had broken off the, the main working group and, and the convener had, had, had said, oh, you know, go off and try and put some English to it. I think it came about we were trying to define toxicological equivalents to help to help out the working group um that we're writing part 17 which is had started started in tandem with this so this was part 18 had almost um come to an end and part 17 was was going to take up the mantle which which is still going on i think it's fair to say in certain circles for part 1 the flow charts the message coming out of reading the flow charts were equivalence was dead in the water and you couldn't demonstrate equivalence, especially if you were demonstrating to another device. So they saw perhaps there was a route around demonstrating equivalence if you had a minor alteration with your device through a manufacturing process or someone, your manufacturing supplier um, changed um, sites and it really became quite problematic. And then within the MHRA, there was lots of concern around the fallout because clinical equivalence can only be demonstrated if biological equivalence is demonstrated first, otherwise you don't have clinical equivalence. So then there's, there was conversations in-house about whether clinical equivalence was dead as well. So this was um, by no means um, the, the finished article. It was an hour or two putting some words together based on the group of our experience. Was There was regulators in the room, there was contractors in the room, there was experts in, you know, a long time doing um, tox risk assessment in the room and trying to put some English on what exactly is, what, what are the ingredients you need to demonstrate equivalence? 
I think every time you put a piece of prose together, you go down the line further of being a tick box exercise, which for equivalence is the last thing that you're going to be doing because you'll need that expertise. Um, I think physical equivalence, perhaps, you know, MDR, it's fair to say, if you get your leach bills right or you do your extractable study, you, you, you satisfy a lot of, of what comes out of the MDR and the focus on chemistry and chemical characterization was, was significant. Physical characterization, not, not necessarily. Part 19 was almost ignored. Coming out of Annex C, I don't know if, the, if that's the fallout, but currently there is conversations within the EU that physical characterization is more on the agenda of the notify bodies, um, which concerns me perhaps given the lack of threshold levels we have around some of this, particularly particle characterization. But the EU have been burnt, well, and the globe have been burnt by examples of metal on metal debris. So, you know, we need to think, think about it. But there was definitely a conversation. Let's put down what we think are the elements. The examples, you know, are an interesting. I certainly <laughs> wasn't involved in writing the examples. Um, and, and, and it's always interesting. The more detail you put, the, the more that you run, um, run foul of it. There is a hope to move this. It, it, its location in part 18 was more a timing issue because part 18 was being written at the time. And when part one is developed, there is a hope to, to move this into part one. And I'm sure that this will be further developed. But again, I think to think of equivalence as a concept rather than an equation of things that you go through to demonstrate is the best thing to do, because it is all based, in my opinion, on prior use. And that's mm -hmm. a movable target <laughs> and something that's marketed is a regulatory term. And it doesn't necessarily infer safety because working for 14 years for the agency, I've removed many devices from the market that were perceived as safety, but now we're not. So I, I think yeah. understanding the pitfalls is just as important as understanding the strengths of, of demonstrating equivalence. But anything that reduces unnecessary testing, unnecessary barriers to, to, to innovation um, and clarity around how to, to, to carry out risk assessment in the hands of the toxicologist is a good thing. I think the fact that medical device is seen in many circles to be the, one of the most risk averse industries when you compare it to the chemicals and food and drugs isn't a good thing because these devices are engineering products and sometimes we need them in humans to see whether they pass or fail. So I, I think anything that will get us over the barrier and get manufacturers devices into the hands that that matter is a good thing. I just don't know. It needs many other iterations to, to work. It was a starting point. And as far as I can tell from feedback, um, people tend to like it over the whole. People have issues with it, but they they think it's a good thing beyond what part one has, which is basically same, 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 same. And I don't know what you can do with that because yeah, <laughs> nothing is the same. Yeah, it's so interesting that you know, you make a great point. I mean, I love your, I love the term unnecessary barriers to innovation. And I, I think that that's just key and that the use of equivalency ideally can help, you know, mitigate those unnecessary barriers. And I think a lot of times when I see folks talking about equivalence and maybe the one that makes the most sense to me is like, I'm moving my manufacturing from, you know, Spain to Portugal. And I don't want to, you know, that's a big change, but how do I not repeat a bunch of unnecessary testing, slow down my progress, slow down my innovation? You know, equivalency there seems to be 
you know, really a logical kind of path to clear, you know, your safety. But again, in the polar opposite of that, you know, me saying, you know, my heart valve is equivalent to Joe's heart valve down the street because we both use a plastic from somewhere and God knows what's in it. You know, that that's the extreme, right? So yeah. we have two yeah. ends of the spectrum and there's a lot of a lot of gray area certainly in between. And I know you both have probably seen a lot of that. So the challenges certainly are when it's not your device, right? And even then, if you can procure the other device or the other materials, how do you really line up extractables? Because it's never, ever going to be exactly the same, right? Yeah. If you can get hold of their data. Yeah. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then you're likely something. doing something you can't share anyway, because you've totally yes. done something <laughs> illegal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've Proof had people... I know Don and I've been on calls with somebody that said, I know this is the exact same material because I worked there and I procured it there and now I'm procuring it here. But we're like, but can you document that? You, you, you know, you legally can't. I mean, you could probably risk getting in trouble from the previous employer. But yeah, you, that's, that's the extreme where you know you're procuring the exact same thing because you procured it in more than one place. Yeah. And, and, and I think. You know, one of the other things that Michelle said that I think is important is just recognizing that Annex C exists, what it's intended to illustrate in terms of a concept. But as you said, not considering it to be a formula to success that you follow every time and boy, it's going to work every time and be the, I think people have to understand that it exists and there's going to be strengths and weaknesses to each situation if you try to apply those concepts. And and you may come out of it realizing as part of your planning step for biocompatibility that, look, this idea of trying to prove equivalency in this given situation is just wrought with challenges that we're not going to be able to get around. And so it doesn't feel like a good idea. Just kind of knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know to realize what you could do is, I think, a, a key aspect in that. It's It's not like you're in every case, going to be the, the golden ticket to uh, an ending that you're going to be able to save time and money in every situation. But but in situations like what Sherry described, it just does seem like there should be a path, especially if the change is controlled within your company to some degree. Like right. If you're moving your manufacturing site from Spain to Portugal versus your subcontractor or two different subcontractors or something like that, then it gets a little bit more complicated, I would say, because again, it's access to data as well. Yeah. You know, how, how much access do you have to the detailed information that you need to really build confidence that you can kind of go down this pathway successfully? Yeah. So, you know, part 18, obviously, Annex C helps guide us. And Michelle, thank you for your work on to helping develop that, because I do think it, it helps at least give, you know, some guidance there. MDR, I guess if we want to switch to the other end of the, how do we do this? You know, that transition to what's an equivalency look like in MDR? And it's certainly much broader than toxicological equivalence. So I don't know, Don, if you want to introduce that to us. And obviously, Michelle, feel free to correct Don wherever he says yeah, something. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I stand to be corrected every day. Uh, anybody that works in biocompatibility, if they don't think they can be corrected, right. oh, they, absolutely. Up, they got another uh, 
vision of reality that I have. Um, but anyways, yeah, so, you know, under MDR, certainly biological equivalence, as I understand it, is certainly one aspect that comes into play. But this whole concept of equivalency is, say, in a, at a high level, this process by which you gain access to clinical data to support the evaluation of your device. You can show that you're equivalent, then in essence, you you know are trying to gain access to more information. Um, but biological is just one aspect of proving equivalency. You also have to prove you know technical and clinical aspects as part of the equivalency evaluation as well. So in my world, primarily, I'm stuck in the biological area, and I let other aspects uh, fall into somebody else's lap. But in terms of biological under MDR, just that one aspect, again, kind of back to that same concept a little bit that we saw in ISO 10093 Part 1, you know, the device uses the same materials or substances in contact with the same human tissues or body fluids for a similar kind of duration of contact and similar release characteristics of substances, including degradation products and leachables. So that's just the biological component of MDR equivalency. Now, you know, again, we have that word same sneaking up on us and and what that means to one, what that means to ISO 10993 part one, you could see a really restrictive interpretation of the word same come into play. I think from my point of view, I could see that being looked at, maybe interpreted differently by different reviewers, different regulators. I've seen it hit pretty hard here stateside, again, outside of the MDR, obviously. But in terms of the FDA using the same concept in, in with a really pretty conservative view um, in terms of it better be the same supplier, same grade of the same material, not just saying that high density polyethylene from, you know, company A that manufactures it is the same as high density polyethylene from company B that manufactures it. But again, you know, this, the concept under the MDR is certainly a broader concept. And so we start to see the similarities and differences between ISO 10993 series and concepts used there as compared to MDR, which this is just one example of where, you know, they overlap to a degree, but then differ a as well. So, yeah, it's <laughs> it makes the challenge, in my view, just a little bit greater for those that are working under the MDR, almost to the point of, I think, in some feeling that proving this almost seems an impossible task unless all the data are essentially your own, that like within your own company, because how else would you have access to this biological data, technical data, clinical data, um, to where it's all publicly available that you can gain access to it? And I guess that's Part of the challenge in this whole process but shell feel free to again correct me <laughs> yeah i think the, the biggest challenge for manufacturers i can see in europe is unlike in the in stateside where everything's under one roof so you think you've cracked it if you've talked to to, to, to the fda and, and and they tell you you know their thoughts the problem in in in, in the mdr it's regulated by every different country with lots of different um, notified bodies. So you gain insight from one notified body is meaningless for another. I mean, there are benefits that you can quote unquote shop around for, for your notified body, which has gained many controversies over the years and, and, and 
witnessed audits and and, and dual audits are, are are an attempt to to overcome those. But sitting on the regulator side, you know, notified bodies are a challenge to police them. But but at the same time, that they, they are a challenge for the manufacturers understanding what's going on in their um in in their heads. So I think from my perspective, what's coming out of the MDR is. It's about your legible profile and it's about, you, you know, demonstrating according to part 18, if your part 17 is, is acceptable enough. But that's significant. That carries significant problems because analytical chemistry can't be seen as a checklist because we, we've had this for years with lots of different biological tests and, you know, round robins coming out of, of um, the ISO working groups have shown that you can you can give your material to five different test labs and they'll all come out with five different profiles. So. To that point, there's no equivalency is supposed to be rooted in clinical um, performance of a device. And, and your device doesn't increase that, that risk of, of adverse events to, to the person more than your others. But it's, it, it, I agree with you, it's very, very difficult. And regulators have become wary of, of clinical data because complaint data up until now has been the, the, the gold standard in terms of demonstrating performance of your device. But now through the MDR, they've also made post-market clinical follow-up essential. There are lots of registry data coming out on orthopedic devices that they want to see, and, and registry data is mandatory in most countries, so that's very, very powerful data. Um, at the agency, I think we did a study one time and, and for complaint data, and we found that there was a 2% reporting rate for adverse events directly to the Compt Authority compared to what was being reported by the surgeon under the registry, which, which is why notified bodies understanding understandably and and stateside um regulators are 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 so interested in preclinical testing and, and and analysis because s such little weight right now is put on clinical evidence coming from devices on the market it's such a movable target but i think um the big a big problem with equivalence and while it's not a biological equivalence problem there isn't a standard like iso 1093 on clinical evaluation. So the ability to evaluate a device clinically is, 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 is different in different hands. So um, my, my, I'm chair of CH194, which is the UK committee that feeds into TC194. And we're developing a standard on clinical evaluation that will eventually go um, to, to, to the working group at ISO level so that at, le at least all of these concepts are tied into one, because I think um, a big part of part one that's missing is the clinical benefit, because at the moment, toxicological risk, any risk at all is seen as, no, that's it, your device can't go forward. And um, because we're not able, the guidance isn't there to pin clinical benefit over toxicological risk. And I think when all of these concepts are borne out and un understood in the right hands, clinical equivalence will, will, will gain traction again and, and will become a, a term that they'll use. Where ten years ago, when I first was in this industry, everybody got through clinical um, biological equivalence on trying to see mark their device. It was it was incredible things that you would never have thought would be demonstrated <laughs> equivalence with. It was quite shocking, and the the amount of data you could just have one sentence to say yeah. it's the same marked device for sure. It uses the same plastic, and that and that was it. Processing aid was 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 unheard of, even the word. So I, yeah. I, I think. You know, we, we, we have come too much the other way. So I think we'll come back and into the nice middle and we will find um, scenarios where obviously you'll use equivalence. You won't have to go down first principles every time 
But I think we had to go the other way before we understood the concept because we were, it was too much the other way in Europe. I don't know about the States, but in Europe, yeah. um, equivalence was, was, was used too often for biological safety. Yeah, I certainly uh, think years ago, that was kind of a, that was a, we're the same as Joe's art valve down the street, right? Uh, yeah. And obviously that was picked up on. Yeah, so, you know, balance is often something, you know, we swing by as we're going from one extreme to the other. Yeah. And it seems that that's exactly what's happened here. We've just flown past balance and gone from one extreme to the other. Sorry, Don, were you trying oh, no, to no, say something when I wanted to make a funny joke? <laughs> <laughs> no, Are you trying to be serious? No. No, serious is no fun. That, that's, that's not what <laughs> podcasts are about being serious are they no they are <laughs> but anyways um sometimes. no um yeah sometimes i don't listen to those though um but anyways yeah just the uh you know from the stateside point of view though you could you, i mean i think what you described michelle is applicable here in the states as well as in the EU. i know but in but don it was a running joke Get your device onto the European market, see how it worked for five years, and then sure we'll jump over stateside and and they'll have a proper look. On honestly, that that's the way biological safety was for years. Um, yeah. it was always the the easier path is Europe. So yes. go there first. Yes. I mean, yeah, we I mean we definitely heard that. Yeah, yeah now, the MDR now, has changed that. Yeah, I was just gonna say now now you hear people saying <laughs> the exact opposite. Get your device yeah. on the market in the United <laughs> right. States, collect some clinical data. And then go <laughs> to the EU market, market and, you know, by for the time being, just don't worry about the whole MDR situation and, and just do something easier and talk to the FDA. Who would have thunk that, right? I mean, but anyways, yeah. Again, swinging fast that, <laughs> that medium <laughs> point, you know, waving at it as we go by. That's exactly <laughs> what's happened. Yeah. yeah, maybe eventually it'll be, you know, you know what? Just go to Japan, get your device yeah. on the <laughs> <in> Japan, <laughs> then go to the United States, and then go to the European market. That's how it'll work. If, work. if that happens, that'll be, I mean, that means we, the U.S. and EU have both gone a little crazy. <laughs> I tell you what, though, there's, there's some situations where, you know, just talking amongst our group. Um, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's some situations where you're like, boy, I, you know, I kind of like the approach in, you know, say Japan or someplace else, just because of what seems like what you're talking about, Sherry. There seems to be a balance of some sort there, or, or you know, someplace that that we might be able to address things more easily in another region. But uh, but yeah, well, the you, reality is, you know, the U.S. market and the EU market tend to be the places that everybody tends to talk about. At least the people that that I work with primarily. Certainly the other markets are coming to play as well, but um, yeah. And I think yeah, Michelle said it, <laughs> yeah, Michelle said it well, that whole, what we need to do to balance the risk with the benefit of this medical device once it gets to a patient that needs it. And how do we not stall out that innovation by being overly cautious? I could go into a whole you know, tangent about COVID, but I won't do that, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> how do we, you know, we have to weigh, I mean, that's what this whole thing's supposed to be about, right? Like the whole concept mm -hmm. of part one is, is a risk analysis. And, and I certainly think that sometimes the benefit of the device gets lost in the risk of a little processing aid or a tiny little peak that wasn't identified in chemical characterization. You know, I, I just feel like sometimes the focus gets really 
on the wrong thing. And then yeah, also. And, and working, <laughs> working for the agency, there was a couple of examples where as the toxicologist, I was the least risk averse in the room. And there were right. de- devices where removing it, where the manufacturer really wanted to, which is absolutely they did the right thing because um, it wasn't it was a serious risk. But the benefit was such that removing all these from UK homes would have been such a serious issue that I had to write quite a serious letter to the NHS. And, 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 and they were in full agreement that the benefit of leaving it outweighed any long term risk um, that was that was quite small. And part 17 would would have completely um, disagreed with me. But it's because part one is 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 deficient right now. Um, in 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 its ability to be able to tie all of what part and 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 it's openly deficient. You know you know people acknowledge this and and it will be yeah. sorted out. But you know we've come so far from the 2009 version of Part One to the 2018, right. where you know chemical characterization was unheard of in 2009. The words were there, but you know it was missing from Table A One, so so nobody um, paid any attention to it. So we you know all of this has to be iterative because if you make the right jump. The first time, it'll be so big that people will just throw it out. No, I mean, you know, the devices wouldn't be on the market. But absolutely, sometimes the toxicologists are, are can be the least risk averse people and recognize the benefit. And, and if the toxicology or the, the toxicological risk is understood enough, then, you know, these tiny risks can be explained. And I, and I, I think not to be a little bit controversial, but I'm... Um, Going back to the the, the unicorn um, conversation, um, enough of it. If the reviewers are as sufficiently well versed in, in, in toxicological principles as the authors are, then all of this will be a balanced look. But the problem is that that if the reviewers are using MDR as a checklist exercise, and you keep seeing the word same, and everybody's a, a definition of same is different, but it is quite a um, um, immovable target. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a stiff term. Then you are going. You're you're, you're going to be set up for failure. So I, I think the, the the focus has to be on you know full circle from where we came at the start of the podcast. That you 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 look at this as a concept, and then in the right hands you can make it work to to what you need. If if you need it, you do. If you you work with it. If if you think that it's not the the right approach, then then you go down the first principles approach. But the series. You know, we are in danger of 1093 becoming so prescriptive that people have come to me in the past when I worked for the agency and say, why do I need a degree in anything? I mean, I mean, I just need to read, you know, spend many months reading 1093 and I'll know it all. Um, and, and that's the danger because yeah. time and time again, I've seen examples where devices that should never have been put on the market or should have come with a, a warning because often um, it's not the patients and are appalled by these devices is that they haven't been properly counseled in the use of these devices. So often devices, in my experience, that are really good are thrown out because the risk wasn't explained well enough. So it became unacceptable and then you can't come back from there. So I think Mm -hmm. it it, it is, you know, I would hate for equivalence to be thrown out because the MDR is so rigid. And I think 1093 has the opportunity to work on on Annex C because it certainly isn't the finished product and to make it work for the right people with the hope of getting more devices into the hospitals and into the patients. Excellent. Well, I mean, I think <laughs> I, I think that was a great, <laughs> great summary of our of our discussion today. Don, do you have anything you want to add before we move into a little game? 
Or did no, I skip I think, anything? I think I'm good. And the show, <laughs> like you said, did an excellent job kind of uh, summarizing what we just talked about today. And, and yeah, you know, challenges remain. Not like we're out here to solve the world's problems and uh, the matter. Oh, of we, we, we'll life. try, Don. We, we can try. <laughs> we can try, though. <laughs> One step at a time. <laughs> One step at a time. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, that that word same, man, <laughs> when is same the same? I mean, <laughs> you know, that's like just that is uh, that is such a uh, interesting conversation we could probably talk about for a very long time. So, yeah, yeah for sure. But we did, we did hope think, that additional oh. concerns would be the overriding word for annexing. Right. I'm, I'm not sure it was, but that was what we were hoping, <laughs> that additional concerns, new concerns. Additional. But I'm not, I'm not sure that that, that that was the case. Right. Yeah, great point. All right. Well, I think it's time for a little fun game of Two Truths and a Lie. <laughs> We were talking to Michelle about this uh, before the podcast, and so we explained to her Two Truths and a Lie, our crazy, fun little game that we like to play. And man, mine are really boring today. So <laughs> I had like I had like no creative energy this morning when I was writing them. So so uh, who wants to go first? You want my low level, disappointing ones to start us off? Sure, sure. And then I'll see if sure. I can bring yours to a lower level by giving you <laughs> mine. So. All right. All right. So here's my two truths and a lie. Again, concept is I'm saying three things. Two of them are true. One of them is a lie. So the first one, equivalence is almost always a long discussed topic at our NAMSA training events. Number two, my favorite equivalency evaluation is performed on champagne. Number three, there is no confusion between equivalence and predicate devices. Oh, it's going to be number three. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to be involved in the conversation for number two, though. <laughs> right. Yeah. So let's do a next time when we meet in person someday, we'll get to. We will do an equivalency evaluation of champagne. And oh, that'd be great. Uh, I hope you don't get there too quickly. So we need to copious amounts of bottles before we figure out the answer. And we probably we probably should be in France when we do this as yeah. well. Oh, so. yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> Don and I've done a little bit of equivalency testing on Champagne in France, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> I, I, there needs to be more investigation, though. Um, I'm not much I'm more. Not... Much, and we, we can we more. can throw some white wine, red wine. I, I can throw lots of sure. We lots can some beverages in there. We can we can expand our evaluation yeah. into <laughs> ancillary device materials. Uh, okay, all right. So yes, you got that one right. Yes, that I mean, and that we touched on that. There is always, almost always, confusion between equivalency and a predicate device when, in the U.S., especially when you're talking about five ten k. So, yeah. um, okay, Don. All right. If you can top uh, my champagne evaluation, I don't know. I think I'm going to fail, but anyway. <laughs> so um, mine, again, linked to equivalency to some degree. So I've seen the following used by customers to essentially try to prove biological equivalence between two medical devices. So one, cytotoxicity testing by itself. Two, thromboresistance test in vivo by itself, and three, chemical characterization testing of extractables between two different devices. 
So which of them can't you believe would ever be true? Ironically, because truth is funnier than fiction, I can believe all of them. Um. <laughs> I could too. I mean, I want to believe the cytotoxicity has never been used, but something tells me no. Yeah, it's, it's uh, that, B? that one's true. I'm yeah. saying B is the lie. I'm saying B too. Yeah, it was B. Because <laughs> now I could see situations where some would say, well, for hemocompatibility, that is sure. possibly fair game. Yeah. But it, is that all you need to worry about in most cases when you're talking about some right. type of device that would require that study? So I guess, yeah, I guess it depends on how. Yeah, go I guess ahead. It depends on how sick, uh, how sick the patient is, and and the thrombotic event is probably your most acute clinical event. And yeah, if you're prolonging a person's life, to me, thromboresistance it makes more sense than cytotoxicity. I have to admit. <laughs> on, on yeah. Well, yeah, cyto, yeah. cyto makes no sense. But you'll learn. Well, maybe you've heard this on the other side of the table, but on our side of the table, so many folks think cyto is the magic bullet. To everything like. Or like, really, Cyto doesn't mean much of anything, folks. So don't worry about Cyto. <laughs> that's why no. it only costs a couple hundred dollars because that's about <laughs> all it's worth. <laughs> but the pain, if you fail, if if your Cyto right. isn't at all, because again, measures will just right. That's it. It's gone. Again, putting too much focus on something that doesn't really mean much because they don't understand what a Cyto does. But anyway, okay, yeah. we'll get, we'll not get off on that tangent. We've we've <laughs> talked about my my love hate relationship with Cyto before. <laughs> okay, all right, Michelle, you're up. So so yeah, these are not funny at all. But yeah, and they might be that's quite okay. obvious. But we're so, not funny either. <laughs> so um, a trying to demonstrate equivalence can result in more testing than going down the traditional route of using first principles. Or prior use is an important component of demonstrating preclinical safety when going down the equivalence route. Or demonstratable equivalence with the CE marked device is bulletproof when proving safety of your device within the EU. We're talking biocomp. So is anything bulletproof? So I'm going to say three. <laughs> yeah, the bulletproof word got me. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because, because it's 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 a misnomer to assume that a C mark yes. is accepted everywhere in Europe. So often you there's a little number um, under your C mark, and if a notified body isn't associated with that no number, then they don't automatically accept um, another notified body's review. But I think interesting. Inter yes, yeah. yes, it is. So it's it's a little tip <laughs> to make sure that you're going to the notified body with the number or, or, or else assume that that question will be asked because they all focus on different things. It's a misnomer to think that demonstrating equivalence is cheaper because I have heard in circles in the EU that the only way to demonstrate equivalence with your device and another manufacturer's device is to get the two devices. So actually physically buy the other manufacturer's device put it through extractable and leachable testing, because you can, even if you could have access to the data, there might be intra-laboratory variation. So demonstrate yeah. extractables with that device and use the same technique in the same laboratory and the same personnel to do yours and compare the two profiles, which of course, if you know 1093 part one, if you do extractables of your own device and demonstrate that there, it's not a toxicological concern, you can, in theory, waive biological testing. So often you've gone and done two testing profiles and done two tox risk assessments where you could have only done one. So I think it's a concept that is flawed in its technique. So it, it's just an interesting thing that 
it could actually cost you more money to try and demonstrate equivalence because you don't, as Don had said earlier, have access to their data. Yep. Um, yep. And it might, might not even be good enough because you don't have access to their clinical data. Um, and the regulator could do because they have access to adverse events. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it's a problem. But yes, bulletproof. Yeah, maybe if I use a different word, but that's a rookie mistake. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. You know, welcome. I mean, you've been here a little bit, but certainly welcome to NAMSA. We're glad that you're here. Welcome to Biochem Chatability. You've done excellent. You're welcome back anytime. You have a topic you, you want to talk to with us or talk with us about what, anyway, you know what I mean. Don, anything, uh, any last words from you? No, it's been a, it's been a good episode. So thank you, Michelle. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that we'll continue to uh, work through some uh, situations as uh, your time here at NAMSA progresses for sure. So good to talk to you. And uh, it was great, uh, great episode. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Thanks for thank listening. You. We'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Biochemchatability, We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com resources podcast.